everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked Podcast. We have a, a very special guest today, uh, Clifton Duncan, who uh, hopefully you're familiar with on Twitter. He does uh, amazing work and provides some extremely valuable insights, often with a lot of humor attached to it, which I appreciate. So uh, thank you so much for doing this, Clifton. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ian. Great to uh, to finally meet you. It's, uh, it's, uh, I'll never not be amused by the the uh, idea that I'm providing insightful commentary. <laughs> you know, I, I say, you know, if we're relying, if we're uh, looking to to actors for insightful commentary, then we're in big trouble. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, seeing how the experts have done over the last couple of years, uh, maybe we should be listening to some more actors uh, in this in this day and age. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I agree with you. Maybe, maybe <laughs> actors, but uh, you know, not, so, not as a whole. Yeah. Um, so my first question for you, I wanted to just kind of get your general background and, and, and also, you know, beyond just your background, what kind of got brought you into the uh, people call it team reality? You know, what kind of got you onto that side of, uh, of COVID policy debate? Um, well, the, uh, the flippant answer would be common sense. But uh, <laughs> no, you know, uh, I am uh, what's known as a classically trained um, actor. So my, my life up to this point pretty much for the last 20 plus years was uh, doing plays and, and being an, an actor and, you know, doing, uh, you know, and then around 2017, things really began to take off for me um, and everything was going in the right direction. And then in 2020, the world ended. And um, initially at the beginning of that year, and I say, you know, I've said this um, on other occasions as well, I was very much, um, on the COVIDian side of things, I, you know, I was stocking up on food. Fortunately, I didn't get caught. Um, I, I wasn't forced to grapple with any grandmas uh, over the last roll of toilet paper at the supermarket. So I, I avoided <laughs> that indignity. But um, I, you know, back as far back as January of 2020 in February, I was masking and gloving in public. Um, you know, people were uh, making fun of me. I remember one gentleman in particular um, I was in uh, Midtown Manhattan, Upper Midtown Manhattan, about to board the train, and I walked past um, this guy, and uh, you know I had my mask on, and you know at, at the time I was like I, I didn't necessarily feel like I was better than anybody else, but I but you know I felt like I was a part of this small exclusive club that sort of knew what was coming and nobody else did, and I was very frustrated that uh, nobody else seemed to be doing anything. And that was back when everybody was saying, it's just the flu, bro. But uh, <laughs> this, this guy that I walked past, um, he just he just <laughs> said uh, he, he couldn't quite um, grasp why somebody would be wearing a, a mask out in public. And he said, you know, the ones that are wearing it, they must be the ones that got it. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was like me and maybe a few middle-aged uh, Dominican ladies. And of course, um, you know, our, our East Asian population, well, you know, who had already been masking uh, uh, in, in public anyway. But um, yeah, you know, I was very much in the camp of something, something big is coming and uh, a lot of people are going to die. And, you know, I'm pestering my friends with statistics and, and warning them to stock up on things and uh, fretting about, you know, what happens when this hits the homeless population, you know, I, all kinds of doomsday scenarios. I'm, I'm, I'm spraying down every surface in our in, in our shoebox apartment. I'm sure my roommate thought I was insane at the time. Um, I was wearing what I jokingly referred to as my hazmat suit in the apartment as I'm wiping down every single handle and knob. I'm wiping down my mail. I'm, you know, I'm uh, wiping down my groceries, my keys, my phone, um, any surface that I touched. Uh, so I was very much um, in 100%. I'm, I'm talking to my, it's a very New York thing to say, but I was talking to my therapist about uh, about this back in January. And um, so for anyone who would try to say that uh, I am someone who denies the existence of the virus, which I which I then came down with um, in December of that year of 2020, um, then they're basically talking out of their backside. <laughs> but um, you know, but over time, there were there were just certain things that began not to make sense to me. Um, I think one of the biggest things for me was a story. I think it was around April in 2020 that came out in the New York Times, which said that uh, um, over 3,700 deaths were being added to the death toll, bringing it bringing it over 10,000. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. 
um, at a time where it seems like we should be trying to uh, get uh, as much accurate data as possible about this re regarding how lethal this virus is, then why are we just guessing? Because it was like, well, these are assumed COVID de deaths. They weren't tested. They uh, they weren't uh, you know they weren't confirmed cases. And of course now we we see that they're finally making the distinction between people who died you know of COVID versus people who simply who merely died. I don't want to diminish the deaths of anyone who lost somebody, um, but uh, distinguish deaths. Uh, of people who had who happened to have the virus or test or tested positive for it, so it was that. And then um, Andrew Cuomo, our our disgraced former governor of New York, um, you know, he, he was constantly fear mongering and, and badgering. And he was caught. Um, he he released this executive order on March twenty fifth, uh, in which the, the fifth paragraph stated that um, nursing homes could not reject potential uh, residents based on their COVID status. But by that point, we already knew. I mean, they were calling it the boomer remover, for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. So I, I was trying to figure out what, um, what the justification was for a policy that would absolutely put um, our most vulnerable population uh, at risk. Um, so that was another thing that sort of began to um, say, make me say, wait a minute. I, you know, and I had uh, a friend who would send me articles. Uh, one was by John Ioannidis, who early on said, you know, this isn't, he wrote that Wall Street Journal op-ed that said, this is not as dangerous as we're being made to believe. And I was annoyed at the time, um, but because I respect her, uh, I, I kept my mind opened about it. Um, so there was a lot of things that were that were happening all at once, um, and um, and by the way, you can't find that executive order anymore on New York on the New York governor web uh, New York government website <laughs> that I was talking about. They scrubbed it. I wonder why they did that. Right. Um, so you know, it, it was it was a lot of things that uh, that sort of began to um, uh, coalesce at the same time. I think an, another major turning point was when one week. If you were out protesting the COVID restrictions, you were the worst person ever. But the next week, if you were protesting in the wake of the death of George Floyd, then all of a sudden racism was a public health crisis, which must, um, which it doesn't matter if you're out protesting and um, going to potential super spreader events. And, um, you know, it just, there were, there was so much that began to not add up. And I saw early on that there were very, very few people if any, who were able to talk maturely about uh, costs versus benefits of what we were doing. There were very few people who were willing to look at the long-term ramifications of what we were doing in terms of lockdowns. Um, and the debate over masks, I thought, was just one of the stupidest things ever. Um, so that's sort of a long, um, both a long and truncated um, story of my, of my journey through all of this. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and it's very interesting that you were taking it so seriously early on. You weren't very, you know, you weren't a, an anti-masker or anything like that. It was, it was, uh, it, you know, you kind of came at this from a different point of view. I think that's a lot of criticism that people get uh, that kind of have taken, you know, I don't want to have all of our views are the same, but taken our side in terms of, of COVID policies in the long run is that they, Oh, you're a denier, you're a minimizer. So that's kind of interesting to hear that you, that you didn't start out that way. Um, and it also, I think goes to show that if you have a open up, if you have an open mind, if you're willing to go read new things and, and, and you know absorb new data, you can change your mind. Does that surprise you that so many people have completely been unwilling to do that? Do you think over the long term? Um, I think one of the most shocking things, and I forgot to add that um, in in June of 2020, uh, I think one of the biggest things is when I, I moved uh, out of, or I should say, I fled the city formerly known as New York, and um, I. <laughs> I came to Atlanta, Georgia, where I am now. And um, it was like night and day in terms of the COVID consciousness, COVID awareness. And uh, strangely enough, despite the, the uh, lax uh, attitude toward the virus compared to New York, uh, there were not mass graves. And mm -hmm. I looked, you know, I mean, I didn't look at the graves <laughs> themselves, but I looked for, you know, whatever data, because you, you know that if there were, you know, mass deaths happening, it would be all over the news. Um, but... I think one of the things that shocked me the most, um, especially with regard to the so-called progressive New Yorkers who think they're smarter than everybody else and think they're tougher than everybody else, is their willingness to continue to comply 
with these nonsensical measures. And there was a there was a turning point. Another turning point for me was um, I got kicked out of um, one section of a park in um, in Upper Manhattan, and um, you know I, I didn't confirm it, uh, but it looked as though I got basically narked on by someone in an adjacent apartment apartment building, and. Um, I said, wait a minute, something has has changed in the psychology of the city where people are willing to snitch on their neighbors for the crime of exercising and um, out in public. And we're closing down playgrounds and, you know, which felt to me like we were punishing children. And um, meanwhile, liquor stores were allowed to remain open, but the gyms were closed. Uh, you know, there were just so many things that just did not add up. And then you would read these stories about um, for instance, the federal hospital ship that we got, which was barely used before it was sent away, or these multi-million dollar facilities in Queens and Brooklyn that were erected and also barely used before they were turned down. And yet we were being told that hospitals were being overwhelmed. And yet then in October, uh, Andrew Cuomo goes on CNN and he says that hospitals were never overwhelmed um, at any point. Even our emergency hospitals were never overwhelmed. Um, and he's very emphatic about that. So I'm just, you have to wonder at a certain point that, uh, you know, all this stuff is out there. And going back to your question, Ian, it's shocking that you see all this information that's out there and you try to, you try to share it with people and they dismiss you as some kind of uh, right-wing maniac or conspiracy theorist. I'm like, dude, I can, I'm giving you the link to Andrew Cuomo's comments. <laughs> yeah. You're still, you know, and he, I mean, he's very, very emphatic about, um, you know, even during the height of the pandemic, uh, which devastated uh, New York. Um, and by the way, you know, he, there is leaked, uh, leaked tape of him on a phone call um, where he's talking about his policies being completely fear driven and not nuanced. So, you know, he's doing all of this damage. He knows the damage that he's doing. He knows what he's doing lacks nuance. And I would say, dare I say, it's even unscientific. But um, but if you address that with people, if you address what he did as far as nursing homes with people, you know, it, it just became reduced to a Republican talking point. This from the people who claim that they are so compassionate and, and claim that they have the moral high ground and care about and they care about saving lives. So, you know, it's it's been really shocking to observe the complete abandonment of any sort of logic, any sort of reason, any sort of ability to take a more comprehensive look at an extremely complicated and difficult problem. And, um, you know, I think what also didn't help is uh, the president at the time, Donald Trump, uh, you know, not necessarily the most um, um, unifying figure, shall we say, mm-hmm. Um and it was an election year, and I, and I think after four years of uh, t- what I would characterize as Trump hysteria, um, I, I think a lot of people were already primed to be in a position where they were easily uh, manipulated. They were already driven in this sort of psychosis, if I if I you know dare use that term, where they were. I mean, we're dealing we're, de- we're dealing with people who spent four years being convinced that um, our president was a Russian puppet and that we were descending into a new era of uh, uh, Nazism or fascism. So I'm not sure that I would even trust the judgment of these people and, and, and take seriously their grip on reality. And yet here they are, they're, these people with this ideology are controlling a lot of our major institutions that are putting out this information and controlling these conversations, including Silicon Valley and our and, and our press apparatus. Uh, so on a certain level, you can't blame people for being so um, swept away by the narratives they've been presented because, you know, when you're watching Rachel Maddow or Don Lemon, I mean, I've learned a term down south called "bless, uh, bless your heart, bless their <laughs> hearts." Um, you know, it, it, they seem authoritative. They they seem like they're on, uh, like they're doing uh, uh, the right thing. You see someone like Anthony Fauci or, or, God lover uh, Leanna Wynn. They're on CNN. Why would CNN put on anybody who who lies? Why would CNN or the New York Times uh, put out? misinformation. They're, they're the ones combating the misinformation coming from Fox and from Donald Trump. So, you know, there's so much embroiled in all of this that on a certain level, it's hard to blame people because they are um, blame people for falling victim or prey to all of this manipulation. 
um, because there's so much there's so much out there and so much is being controlled. And, you know, you're dealing with people, like I said before, who have been who have spent not only not only the past four years, but I would say even decades um, presuming that the other side of the debate is wrong um, and, and, you know, is uneducated and is anti-science, whatever that even means now. So it's, um, I, I guess on the, the short answer to your question is that I, I've been surprised by a lot of things, but you know, when I think about it um, from another aspect, maybe it's not that surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, a lot of great points that you brought up in there, and I think it all kind of is a, is part of the combination. And so that's kind of related to one of the things I wanted to ask you as well. I've asked a lot of people this uh, on the kind of motivations behind the policies and the continuation of them. You know, it, it's one thing to, to in early 2020 to have like, like how, how you were approaching it. We're, you know, we're not sure what we're dealing with. Maybe it makes sense to take a lot of precautions that may or may not work, but we got to try it. But, you know, we're this continued on into late 2021. Um so do you think that there was a, a recognize uh, the politicians recognize that they could it was politically beneficial to keep them going for so long? Or was it, uh, you know, is there some malice involved? Is it incompetence? You know, what, what do you think that allowed these policies to continue for nearly two plus years? Well, I'm, you know, I'm going back and forth about it. Um, the the difficulty is that when you begin to talk about these things, um, the the. Vanity in me, you know, maybe perhaps the insecurity in me doesn't want to be cast as a quote unquote conspiracy theorist. So I, I think in terms of, you know, as an actor, for instance, you you know, it's, it's your job to continue to ask questions and continue to probe deeper about what drives people to do things. And I think you can break a lot of this down to simple human motivations and human uh, foibles. I do think that there is corruption, uh, cronyism, um, uh, some political lobbying uh, at, at play. I think that uh, there are some really perverse um, incentives in terms of uh, profit, in terms of profiteering that uh, at least pharmaceutical companies are pursuing. And I remember a time, I'm old enough to remember when uh, our friends on the so-called left, the liberal, so-called liberal left, um, recognized that we should not trust uh, these pharmaceutical executives and pharmaceutical companies. I mean, Chris Rock once famously said in one of his comedy specials that, that the cure is not in, uh, the, the money is not in the cure, the money is in the medicine. So we all know this. We know these people don't make any money if you're healthy and well. We also, you know, and I, I watch on the few occasions when I do watch TV, if I'm at the gym or something and, you know, there's daytime television on, I'm shocked by the number of commercials that are pharmaceutical ads. You know, are you suffering from uh, soreness in your left nut? Well, <laughs> then take t- uh, Testatrex, um, you know, and then there's like, you know, five minutes of uh, possible side effects. You know, talk to your doctor about Testatrex today. And, um, you know, there, so there's this constant, constant uh, pushing of, of drugs and, and, you know, chemical compounds or, or whatever uh, to, for, for people, you know, on, an every, on a constant basis. Um, so, you know, I, I don't see why it suddenly has become socially taboo for so many people to recognize that, um, no, I'm not, it, like, I don't see why it makes me an extremist to say I don't really trust Pfizer. Uh, or you look at the, there's a great article from uh, uh, an outlet called, uh, I believe it's called Stat News. And they, they, wrote, they wrote an article back in, I want to say 2016, about Moderna. And Moderna has never brought a, successfully brought a product uh, to market. They're, they're more well known for their brilliance at fundraising and all <laughs> of their large promises um, than for anything else. And to be fair, in, a, in normal times, uh, looking at, say, mRNA technology and the possibilities that it presents, it's very exciting. And um, it, it's it's really cool technology. But when you have a, a company like, like Moderna, who, um, like I said before, has never brought a successful product to market, but on top of that, you consider that we've never, ever successfully vaccinated against any coronaviruses in the past. Um, but they all of a sudden nailed this one with this technology that even though it's not new, it's still relatively new and being used in this way, so on and so forth. Um, you know, it, it's it, it it's just, um, I don't see why being cautious and being hesitant 
now makes me the extremist. I think the extremists are the people who say that you should lose your job and lose your civil rights if you don't take this uh, medical product and that your kids should be in masks all freaking day uh, in, in school. Um, but um, going back to your question, it's just, it's, it, I go back and forth on whether or not it's malice or, or ineptitude. I think it's a mixture of both. Um, for instance, it's really hard to, um, it's really difficult to not attribute any sort of malice when you, when you see, for instance, when the news about the, the Omicron variant came out. First of all, uh, this idea that people are suddenly aware that viruses mutate is just is astounding to me. But, yeah. um, you know, the emergence of the Omicron variant, um, even even the South African health officials were saying, no, it's not that bad. And we're not seeing a lot of hospitalizations over this. And, um, you know, they want they want me to say that it's bad, but it's just not. And we see how mild it is and people straight up denying that and even going further with their restrictions. Um, what is the goal of that? What is the goal of not only uh, doubling down on restrictions in the wake of a, a, a mild variant at a point where we have, you know, vaccines widely available for people, for those who want them, or people who have already gotten uh, the infected and, and have, um, you know, have immunity conferred in that way uh, at this point, two years into this. What excuses, you know, do you have um, for continuing these measures? Like, what is your motivation? What are you doing? And then at the yeah. same time, it's just like, well, these things, you know, don't they, they haven't seemed to work. So, again, why are you why are you why are you persisting in doing this? But then you see. Um, you know, the Gavin Newsom's or the Eric Garcetti's, you see, um, I mean, the story came out that uh, that our new, um, you know, second verse, even worse than the first, um, Governor uh, Kathy Holschel traveling down to Florida. You have AOC traveling down to Florida. These states which the Democrats have been painting as um, pretty much death camps. Um, and yet the, the Democrats are holding a convention down there. So they yeah. keep flouting the very same restrictions that they're that they're telling their citizens to uphold. And it's, so it's very difficult not to attribute uh, malice to these people um, when you see actions like that, when you see such blatant hypocrisy and double standards being applied. And then you see people like, you know, Anthony Fauci and uh, the NAIAD, uh, the NIH, the FDA, the CDC, which are all government bodies um, who are acting uh, in, in unison with the federal government. And, um, you know, and then you think about corporate lobbying and again, the, um, the, the profit incentives I was talking about before. So it doesn't have to be some massive quote unquote conspiracy. It, it, it can be dismissed, not dismissed. It can be boiled down, I think, to standard corruption, uh, careerism, um, a lot of politicians trying to cover their asses after two years of gotten, having gotten things completely wrong. Um, you know, politicians trying to save face, politicians trying to, or government bodies, be they local, state, or federal, trying to appear as if they are doing something to solve the problem because there's political pressure to do so. Um, you know, so it, it, I, I, I do think that <laughs> there are people like Rochelle Walensky of the CDC who I think is a total freaking moron. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I just remember her um, that that uh, I'm sure you remember that video she did where she was talking about impending doom and she and, mm -hmm. and, and, I'm, and I'm like, look, guys, I've been an actor for over two decades. I'm a really <laughs> fucking good one. Sorry if I, I'm, gonna, I'm not allowed to swear. You can I guess you can censor it out. But um, <laughs> when I see Rochelle Walensky say I'm going to put down the script and then she's clearly reading from a script and right. talking about, you know, she puts on this voice and talking about impending doom, which never happened. I'm like, these people, she's, well, she's, she's a really bad actor, which is yeah. offensive to me. <laughs> but, but at the same time, like, why is this woman the head of the CDC? She, she seems to be completely out of her depth. But then you see people like Leanna Wynn, who now is doing a complete 180 on the things she said before, as if she never said them in the first place. And, yeah. you know, the, and the excuse is, well, the science has changed. Well, yeah, you know, I made one of my viral tweets was like, yeah, the science keeps changing into things people were getting banned for saying a, a year and a half ago. Exactly. So, you know, it's um, it's it's hard to say how much of it is is intention and how much of it is malice. Um, I think it's a healthy mixture of both. But I would lean in some, you know, in the case of some people like uh, like Anthony Fauci, 
I, you know, I would say more malice than anything else, to be honest. But um, it, it's a toss up for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head in a lot of ways. And it, it's uh, the incentive structures really got completely out of whack where it became beneficial for a lot of these people to continue on with these things in the long term. And until now, as we're seeing, with, like you mentioned with Leona Wen, all of a sudden the incentives are changing again where they're starting to realize, oh, it might damage us politically. Uh, so I, I kind of related to this, the one area that I wanted to ask you about is Broadway um, and kind of related to their incentives where they've you, you've talked a lot about how they're really struggling to kind of keep audiences coming back to shows right now. And um, so there's kind of a two part question. Do you think it's personally in New York, at least, is more related to people not wanting to deal with the restrictions is, or is it fear from the locals? And then secondly, if it is more related to restrictions, do you think they would realize that and, and remove them or does it feel like they're just going to kind of keep encouraging it because they're personally scared? Over a, I forgot when it was, but it was at least a year ago. I went through the message boards of uh, some popular message boards, uh, Broadway message boards. Um, one is broadwayworld.com. There's another one called all that chat. And um, I was stunned to read posts from all these people who, you know, they're regular theater goers, they've been going for years, and they would just say, um, you know, they want masks forever, you know, they think everyone should be, um, should be forced to take, uh, to take these COVID injections. Um, and I think people outside of New York, they don't quite understand what New Yorkers have been subjected to, or I should say people in the city formerly known as New York, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the New York state is sort of a different animal. But the people in the city of New York, particularly on the island of Manhattan, um, have been subjected to over the past two years. You are talking about once you leave your apartment building, you, on the sidewalks, there are arrows in front of various um, in front of various businesses dictating where you should walk and where the flow of traffic should be. There are circles on the ground telling you where to stand in order to maintain social distancing. Um, there, since real estate is such a precious and rare commodity in real and uh, in New York City, in the island of Manhattan, there's a lot of really small shops and stores. So even in the dead of winter, if you have to go, you know, deliver a package uh, or send off a package to the um, from the UPS store, you know, they'll only be taking one customer at a time, and everyone else will have to wait outside. Um, you know, buses driving by have ads on them about, uh, you know, wearing your mask correctly. If you're down in the subway, there's all these digital ads that tell you to do the same, uh, you know, including art by artists. You know, there there was one absurd one where I saw someone, uh, someone had painted the Statue of Liberty wearing a mask. Mm. Um, you, you know, you get on the subway itself. Again, lots and lots of advertisements. Um, or in, in multiple languages, urging you to get vaccinated and to wear your mask correctly um, and to socially distance from one another. Um, and then you have your your political leaders who are urging you and reminding you over and over again that this is a deadly pandemic and uh, you know people are dying and you have to do the right thing. And again, like I said before, Andrew Cuomo is on, he's, you know, he's on tape talking about you know, these are fear. These are not uh, nuanced uh, uh, policies. These are fear driven approaches to this this uh, to this virus. And he's stoking this fear. And again, like I said before, there was that story in The Times where, uh, you know, you have this death toll that was um, that was I'll, I'll say the word inflated um, by adding these presumed COVID deaths to it. So the, the, the broader point is that you have New Yorkers who have been subjected to two years of constant fear uh, constant propaganda. And the thing about New Yorkers is that they have no conception of the world outside of the city of Manhattan, outside of the island of Manhattan or the city of New York, uh, more broadly speaking. They have no idea what's happening outside of it and they have no interest. So they have no idea that in states like Georgia, um, you know, you've been able to, you can't go to a Broadway play in New York, but you can go to the strip club in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. You can go down, you, you can go to the nightclub in Atlanta. You can go to the bars in Atlanta. And no one's social distancing. You know, it, it may shock you, Ian, but people have not been wearing masks and social distancing when they're making out at 2 a.m. at the club. You know? That, that is stunning. Uh, thank you for that. It's very, very surprising. It's, I know it's a stunning revelation. Um, you know, and I, and I worked at a nightclub. I saw this every single night 
where people would just come in. I had maybe one or two people out of all that just kind of freak out and say, oh my God, nobody's wearing masks in there. It's a total super spreader event. And they would leave. Everyone else came and showed up. And when I talked to people on the ground, people were just like, and again, obviously there's selection bias there in terms of people who, who will come out um, you know, to a nightclub. Um, you know, but and you would see this. Um, I worked the door at this nightclub and you would see this um, this wonderful theatrical display better than anything going on Broadway right now <laughs> where people would, you know, they would approach the building. And then within my eyesight and I'm not wearing a mask, I'm outside. They tried to make us wear masks as employees. But guess what? When you're trying to talk over loud music, um, it just doesn't really work that well. So it, so they eventually dropped it. Um, but. You would see people like, you know, leave their Ubers or, you know, drop off their car at the valet and walk around the corner and they would see me. They put on their mask and, then, <laughs> and then, you know, I would check their IDs or whatever. Uh, and then they would they would say like they would look inside and see nobody else with a mask on. And then they would take it off and walk inside the club. I'm like, these people, what like what is going on with this? Yeah. So, uh, you know, but it's a whole so, you know, it's a whole different reality that New Yorkers are living under where they have no idea that, you know, if that there are places with with far more lax restrictions that um, that don't have anywhere near the sort of uh, death tolls that New York um, uh, ostensibly has. And um, but the broader point is that, you know, yes, you're correct that there are so many New Yorkers now who are just plain old afraid. They are afraid to go out. They're afraid. You know, people are proudly talking on social media and on these message boards, or these forums about how, um, you know, they'll never go out without a mask ever again. They're angry that the police won't enforce masking on subways. And, you know, so now what's happening on Broadway, um, which is a very complex issue. Um, there, a lot of shows are struggling. Now, to be fair, the winter season is notoriously uh, rough for Broadway shows. Um, but, you know, there are shows that are closing prematurely. There are shows um, like Aladdin, for instance, that had to close for a couple of weeks, multiple weeks. Even Hamilton, I think, had to close at a certain point for multiple weeks because of COVID outbreaks in their company. Now, what's fascinating about that is that the Broadway League um, and, you know, all the producers, you know, they have determined that, uh, and Hamilton was one of the first shows to announce this, that you, that every single person working on their shows has to have gotten their COVID, uh, their COVID shots. And so you cannot work on Broadway, either on stage or backstage. You can't be an usher. You can't be an audience member. Um, you can't be a musician unless you have gotten these COVID shots. And yet they're still shutting down shows uh, because of COVID outbreaks. And they still won't lift the mandates. And so mm -hmm. now what's happened is, um, you know, Broadway is, for those who don't know, a lot of the theater in New York and around the country, it exists in the nonprofit sector. Uh, Broadway is the commercial realm of the theater, of, of the theater realm. And um, it's the for-profit sector, I should say. And when you... When you have a business that relies very, very heavily on uh, on box office receipts, um, you need as many butts and seats as possible. There's there, it's tragic. I'm sorry, but there just are not enough uh, uh, affluent, wealthy, white, mostly theater goers to sustain a long run of all of these shows. And um, and I think a lot of producers understand this. There was an email that I received. Um, I forgot back when it was, but um, it was an actor from, I think, the, the um, Alanis Morissette uh, show, uh, Jagged Little Pill. And they were angry because producers were proposing uh, reducing shows from eight shows a week to six shows a week, which meant that uh, actors would be getting paid less. And these actors were freaking out and saying, this is not what we agree to. This is not what, you know, what our union stipulates, stipulates, yeah, so on and so forth. But I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe these producers are slightly better economists than these stupid actors who don't know anything. <laughs> and they're, look, they're reading the tea leaves and saying to themselves, oh, wait a minute, we're going to be playing to reduced capacity audiences. We're not going to be able to to run these shows um, in a financially responsible way. Uh, we may need to cut corners. And when you when you are instilling these mandates and forcing people to wear masks for you know to sit for hours and hours and, and you know in these tight, cramped seats in these old theaters, um, you know people don't want to do that. And you're not only and when you have a market that is so so dependent. Um, uh, so heavily dependent, I should say, on tourism, on tourist dollars, both domestic and foreign. 
You're cutting out a huge swath of the population of New York City. You're cutting off a huge swath of the population of the United States. You're cutting off a huge swath of your international audience. I mean, you go to if you go to a show like Chicago. I mean, I, you know, I used to um, to be a, uh, to sell merchandise there. I mean, I would say. I won't say I'm not half, but a lot of the audience members like didn't even speak English. You know, they, they're just in from out of town, from whatever country they came from to to see uh, this uh, to see this really popular show. It's a great show, by the way. Um, but it's it. So they're already killing so much of their potential uh, uh, revenue and um, and profit streams by eliminating so much of their audience. But what's even worse is that then you have our our uh, our unions, the Actors Union, Actors Equity Association, which has barred people from working for a year. And they came out very early on, um, just taking as axiomatic that every single person was going to get these shots. There was no room for debate. There was no room to say, well, what if you don't want this? Like they just they didn't they didn't even entertain the notion that people might turn down these shots. And um, but they also have these, you know, these onerous safety protocols in place. People have to be masked at all times, except for when they're performing, because apparently COVID does not spread when you're, you know, when you're performing your musical numbers. It's so stupid, Ian. It's so stupid. Yeah. Telling yeah. And, um, you know, you can't have backstage visits now, which is a huge, you know, you're making your Broadway debut and now your friends and family can't come backstage and congratulate you. You, you know, you, they may have updated these things by, by now, so I'm not uh, entirely sure. But, you know, there was a point where they said, you know, you can't even do stage doors now, stage dooring, which is where uh, audience members would line up um, outside the theater after the show. And, you know, the actors will come out uh, from the stage door and sign autographs and talk with the fans or whatever. It's a huge part of Broadway culture and it's fan service. And but they have eliminated that as well. You know, um, Jordan Peterson um, even tweeted uh, a couple of weeks ago that he went to to see a show in Broadway on Broadway. And uh, he was uh, he was accosted by I call them COVID cops. Um, who are who are re required to be there, but to enforce mask compliance. So who wants to who wants to see a show with all these rules in place? And um, so you know, the New York Times reported a, a couple of weeks ago now. And what's what's really interesting is that now you you can't really it's hard to find data on uh, on um, the the box office numbers for these shows. Um, it used to be that you could be able to like week by week they do week by week breakdowns of, indiv of individual shows, what capacity the houses are running at, um, how much um, how much they've grossed in the week, um, whether it's uh, above what they grossed the week prior or below what they grossed the week prior. But um, I can't find those numbers now, and they're publishing these sort of composite numbers of of how Broadway is doing, and they're saying, look. Look how well we're doing. We're playing at 80 something percent capacity. I'm like, well, you can't run a show at 80 percent capacity for a long time. Not 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 a not expensive shows like the Harry Potter show or Hamilton. You can't you just can't do it. It's not sustainable. Um, so, you know, it, it, the there's they're so trapped by Covidianism and um, I, I just don't know what you do. But then you see other arts institutions like the Metropolitan Opera, the Met Museum, um, uh, jazz at Lincoln Center. They're they're requiring you know five year olds to be uh, either vaccinated and or boosted in order to have access to these places. So there is something deeply deeply entrenched um, in in the city formerly known as New York. That's that's deeper than just any policy decision. It's deeper. I don't know if elections can fix it. There's something uh, in the psychosis of the city that's changed, and 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 in the identity of the city that's changed. It's um, you know, when I, I moved there in 2006 as a plucky as a plucky young 20 something, as if there's any other kind. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I it, it was all about the, the freedom and the energy, the hustle and bustle. And some people say, well, it's getting back there. It's getting back that way. But sorry, if I can't, you know, just wander around the Upper East Side and say, well, I feel like going to uh, to see. I feel like going to the armory section of the Metropolitan Museum or looking at the sarcophagi. Um, you know, in, in their Egyptian section or whatever, but I have to have this card in order to get in there. Um, sorry, but it's it's not that's not that's not freedom. That's that's ridiculous. Um, so, as far as Broadway is concerned, I mean they're they're falling on their own swords. Um, but in the end, I think it's even more cynical because I don't know if it will matter that much because I they're. You're talking about people who believe that uh, government is there to just give them money to keep on operating. I mean, Hamilton has received, uh, from what I understand, over ten million dollars in government aid um, mm. to, to to keep running. So, 
in the end, it might, even, it might not even matter if they fail, you know, because they'll, the government will be there to prop them up. But I don't know how that's sustainable either. So, you know, so you're dealing with a population that is completely terrified out of their minds. You're dealing with discriminatory policies that will that will er eradicate a, a huge potential source of revenue. And, um, you know, and, and the third thing is that they're they're going full on into, quote unquote, um, uh, wokeness, which is a, a, a different discussion. But, um, you know, I, I don't see how long term um, this uh, this will this will last. And but you see people who are saying, I mean, they're so ridiculous, Ian. They're, they're talking yeah. about, well, if only more people had gotten vaccinated, then we wouldn't be closing right now. If only more people had, had been wearing masks properly or earlier on, we wouldn't be dealing with this right now. You see people, uh, there's a producer named, uh, um, uh, an, an actor named Harvey Firestein, not to be confused with the other Harvey Steen, uh, <laughs> not at all, not at all. Um, but, um, you know, and it's like this is a guy who has been very successful. He's made his money. Um, you know, he's one of the creators of Kinky Boots. Um, you know, he you know, he's he's established and he's saying, no, you know, Broadway is doing things safely. They're doing it right. You know, so really all these all these shows closing prematurely and, and taking these hiatuses, um, you know, creating even more job insecurity in an industry in a field where job security is the exception and it really is a myth and does not exist. Um, it, I, I just, they're, they're so captured by this and they can't see anything uh, outside of it. And it goes back to earlier in our conversation, these people are completely closed minded and they just, they don't, they have no, they have no capacity to think beyond whatever Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert and, um, and Rachel Maddow tells them. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's so frustrating to me that I think people have completely forgotten how important spontaneity and enjoyment and fun are in life. It's like, we've just kind of sacrificed that idea that, you know, like you say, walking into a museum in the spur of the moment, uh, that's not acceptable anymore. It, it, that's just in incredible to me and, and very upsetting. Uh, but, you know, I, obviously these, these industries, and this is the one that you have wanted to work in and, and have worked in, they're not very, uh, and I have experience in a, a different form of entertainment, but in the entertainment industry. So I, I understand this. They're not very welcoming to, to anybody kind of speaking out about against their policies or against their ideologies. Um, and so have you been concerned about the reaction to you being kind of out there and outspoken against COVID policies? And you know, have you lost any friends or acquaintances or, or any opportunities because of your stance on COVID? I'm, 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 as far as I know, I'm pretty much finished. Mm. Um, you know, my, I, my, my representation, um, we, they don't represent me anymore, which is, which sucks because, I mean, I worked really, really hard and for a long time to, uh, to secure that level of representation. Um, you know, the early on in all of this, there was an actor named Chad Kimball who spoke out um, against, essentially the point he was making was about government overreach and the, and how the government has no right to tell him that he cannot sing in church. You know, I think he's out in Washington or something. And Broadway Twitter just completely lit him up. And, um, you know, there were people who were saying, um, you know, I hope I never have to share a rehearsal room with you. Um, I got into it as, at a certain point because I stepped in it and I, I said, you know, he's right. The point that he's making about government overreach. And, you know, then they began they began to come after me as well. Um, there was a point where I got into it with an actor named Stephen Pasquale, whom I've worked with multiple times, um, who, again, he's established and he's done well for himself. And, um, you know, he made some tweet about how life should be made harder for the unvaccinated. And, and I pointed out to him that a large uh, proportion of those people who are who are not vaccinated are racial minorities. And I asked if that's the kind of world he wanted to create. So he deleted the original tweet. Hmm. But then he said, you know, people like me who want to end the pandemic, you know, we're it basically was like, you know, read the data. And so I went to this long thread about if you were reading the data, you would understand who is most vulnerable. You would understand that these uh, that these injections are not the silver bullet that they're being made out to be. You would understand that you're discriminating disproportionately against these certain demographics, which the industry ironically, and especially Broadway, is saying that they want to be more inclusive uh, of. Uh, so, you know, they're, you know, and, uh, you know, people, 
they don't, you know, they don't respond to me. They, you know, I've, I've got a few friends now. Um, I'm annoyed by, by at least some of them because they're going along with this publicly, but they know that it's wrong privately and they won't say anything about it. Um, so there is a huge, huge hive mind and group thing. And you also have to understand that, um, you know, for your, for your listeners that, um, in the entertainment industry at a certain point, uh, once you get to a certain level, it's just assumed that everyone has the, the craft, the ability, dare I say the talent that I don't, I don't really like using that word, um, to be in the position that they're in. And it's just a matter of who, you know. What relationships do you have to get into the room to audition? What relationships your, um, you know, your representation has in order to score meetings with certain directors or producers or casting people to even get you an opportunity? Um, your reputation is extraordinarily important. You don't want to be uh, painted as the quote unquote difficult actor. You don't want to you know, have any sort of um, um, uh, red in your ledger, so to speak, as far as your reputation goes. So it's a very, it's a very social uh, um, industry. Um, who you know and how they perceive you is very important. So, and on top of that, you know, you're unless you're a huge, huge star, you are eminently and always replaceable. So you have all these factors which come in, which factor into it, which makes these um, these stipulations and and uh, and um, measures even that much more disgusting because as an actor, you really have zero leverage. And like you said before, there is, there is hostility and uh, to bring it to a political, uh, political level. I mean, you can't even have um, independent or moderate uh, views on, on any particular topics or you'll be excoriated. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not just about COVID or the pandemic. It's, it's on any range of issues where people who, again, they think they know everything when they actually know not a goddamn thing. Mm-hmm. They, they think that, um, that they're brilliant and furthermore, that they're justified in, um, in their self-righteousness. So, you know, I, I don't have much hope for, uh, for the future of um, the industry. I mean, I, I guess the machine will still continue to operate and will still be there. And we're talking about Broadway. I mean, off-Broadway, as I understand it, you know, my, my producer friend is telling me, like, it's even worse there. Shows are closing left and right. Um, you know, there's only a few shows that are even breaking even. You know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a total bloodbath. So, and yet at the same time, we, like we were saying before, you know, we see all these measures that have not worked. And uh, yet I'm still hearing um, uh, rumors that there are theaters that are requiring actors to be boosted. And how ridiculous is this? You're being forced to take an injection in order to work a gig, a gig, a job yeah. which you know will end. It's not as though you're, you're, you're working you know, in a company that you'll be a part of for 10 or 20 years and you know, get a nice pension. It's a gig. The job will end either in two months or two years. If you're on a television show and you're lucky, it might last for 10 years, but it will end at some point. And you probably won't know. You probably won't see it coming. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and do you really think these producers care about your health and safety? Give me a break. We, these are some of the most vile, uh, self-centered people who don't care about you. And, but people are going along with it. And as you said, part of the reason is there's huge social pressure. And as actors, we're expected to be compliant and we're expected to just um, you know take direction, take direction well, I should say. And nobody wants to be the outlier because everybody, frankly, they're a bunch of bitches and they're scared and they don't want to say anything about it, um, even if they know it's wrong. I keep hearing stories of actors who are faking their vaccine uh, uh, documentation and um, you know, maybe they think they're slick or whatever, because there are also stories of actors losing out on life changing jobs. I mean, TV, TV leads um, who lose out on jobs because they don't want these injections. So nobody wants that to happen to them. And uh, it may shock you to learn, but there's a lot of really vain and self-centered people um, in the entertainment industry who will just say, well, I'll just I'll just forge these documents and go along with it. And um, and they do. But what they're doing is they're complying and they're reinforcing a system which at its root is unjust anyway. Um, so th- there's just a lot of rot and um, a lot of corruption. And, uh, you know, I've I've effectively been purged from the industry at this point, um, even though I was succeeding, despite what people say. I mean, you can Google, I have the receipts. You can Google where I, where I was headed and where I've been. Um, 
you know, and again, it's all ironic because it's an industry that says that they want more diverse artists or whatever. And um, no one is more diverse than me in terms of what I've done. And I've never uh, wanted any special recognition for it. And I've never gotten it. And, um, you know, but now I'm out. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's frustrating. Um, it's difficult not to, be, not to be bitter about it. But, um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm pretty much done. I'm, I'm extinguished uh, as, as a performer from, from what I know, unless the, unless the pandemonium dies down somehow. Um, that's pretty much it for me. Yeah, uh, that's just totally ridiculous, and it, it, it's it's infuriating because, and it's related to kind of the last question I wanted to ask you. And it, it one of the things that drives me crazy is that you hear all these time all the time the people that that promote these policies will act like there's just absolutely no side effects to them. There's no negative impacts. There's no trade offs. Every policy is just it's the it's a, a moral good, and there are no negative uh, impacts. Anything that they do, so it's uh, entirely justified. Um, you know, and when the the Canadian kind of trucker thing was going on i thought you were talking about that a lot um you know people are very frustrated and angry and resentful that's a side effect when you're when you're causing this many people to to lose their livelihoods or to incur these incredible costs you know either morally or or ethically or uh, financially uh, that's a side effect and so you know there's there's all these demonstrable harms to it and do you think that this can be salvaged down the road or has it fundamentally changed the relationship between the government and the people where maybe, okay, you know, COVID, some COVID policies end, but the next time there's a, 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 you know, a pandemic or another large event that requires extraordinary action, we'll go right back into these kinds of things that, that are exclusionary in some instances and have demonstrable side effects. What is deeply concerning to me is that even if things were to go back to normal tomorrow, um, these officials, these bureaucrats, these so-called leaders, um, they've seen what they can get away with and they've seen what they can do. Um, when you see people like Gavin Newsom or Eric Garcetti, just completely, um, you know, or London Breed or, you know, Alexandria Occasional Cortex, completely <laughs> um, flout these measures uh, or Stacey Abrams took that viral photo of her not being masked with a bunch of school children. Um, and you see people that go along with it and they, they support all of this. You know, people are excited about the prospect of a complete rout of the Democrat Party um, this coming November in the midterms. But I'm of the mind that what's been broken can't be fixed by elections. Um, I think one silver lining is that there is a huge sort of realignment that is happening right now. I spoke yesterday to a libertarian or former libertarian named Jeff Deist, who um, is pretty well known amongst, uh, I guess, the libertarian sect. And he even said to me, you know, I don't really call myself a libertarian anymore because, you know, the past two years, um, you know, I'm not sure um, how how feasible that sort of uh, that worldview or, or that vision is. And on top of that, you know, you're I'm befriending people from, you know, um, from libertarians like like Jeff or uh, or Tom Woods to uh, conservatives. I mean, I spoke recently um, to a to conservative um uh, former Fox uh, Fox host uh, Jedediah Bila, um, you know, but also you know I've, I've come in contact with Glenn Greenwald, who's a progressive journalist, um, and uh, you know, or you see people like Jordan Peterson, who I guess you would say he calls himself a classical liberal. Um, so there's people from all walks of life who are looking at this. I mean, I'm in a chat group right now with a bunch of uh, moms who were uh, appalled by what was happening with the schools. And they've continued to be appalled by how the Democrats have handled this. Um, and they are continually, and now what's happened is that they, based on this one policy and this one uh, ridiculous uh, reaction to the pandemic, now they're talking about wokeness. Now they're talking about um, uh, Democrat uh, party hypocrisy. Now they're talking about what's wrong with the left. You're talking about lifelong Democrat voters, um, you know, progressive, voters, people who supported Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, who have now turned around and said, what the hell is wrong with these people? So the silver lining is I think a lot of people are are asking the same question and they're saying, um, no, this is not this is not OK. This can't be the way forward. But I also feel like, um, you know, there was an article today that came out in Forbes or not today, but yesterday from Forbes magazine that I tweeted out where there are there are even 
um, red states now like Utah and Arkansas that are rolling out uh, in Georgia that are rolling out uh, vaccine va uh, vax cards, uh, vaccine passport cards, digital IDs or whatever. So, um, but they're doing it quietly. And, you know, you read this article and they have this uh, this pablum about, um, you know, it's it's about um, people feel more at ease when they're in a venue, um, you know, where they know everyone around them has gotten this injection, which, as we both know, does not stop the spread of the disease, uh, nor does it stop transmission. And, um, you know, it, it just there's no medical necessity for it. They don't even try. They don't even pretend now if there's medical necessity for it. They just have these measures to have them. And the fact that to see and to see uh, red states now implementing these things, uh, it's it's again, I don't know if if elections are enough to to fix this and, and to fix what's broken, because then you think about all of the interpersonal damage that's been done. Um, people say, well, two years, kids are resilient. What about learning loss? What about widening uh, iniquities between uh, various uh, ethnic groups and, uh, and social classes, economic classes? What about, uh, you know, two years of stunted or inhibited development and young people and children? I mean, two years is an eternity in the life of a child. I think about what I've accomplished in two years as an actor. What, you know, in two years, I went from no followers to 70, almost almost 71,000 followers on 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 Twitter. So a lot can happen in two years, but a lot a lot has been taken from people from two, for two years. Businesses have, have been have been shuttered and lost. Um, people have gotten divorces. They've disowned family members. They've cut off friends over all of this. So there's something that's I, I don't know how you um, I mean, then there's stories of, um, you know, what if you are, say, and this is going to be a touchy subject, but what if you are, say, uh, you know, a, a woman who is maybe in her late 20s, early 30s, and you're really ready right now because you feel these internal pressures. You see your friends who are happy they're getting married. I'm seeing more stories like like this coming out where they've wanted to um, to begin settle, settling down, starting a family, having children. And they're saying, oh, my God, I have so little time left. And now, you know, two years, again, is a lot when you're talking about this reproductive window. That's two potential children that they can't have now or two years of getting to know a potential partner that they can have children with. So it's just, there's all these knock-on costs that you're referring to, Ian, that people have not considered at all. And it's not just economic, it's not just political, it's deeply, deeply personal, and it's, and it's a very human thing. And that's, that's where my capacity as an artist comes through. The, you know, the bleeding heart in me says that we're destroying people's lives and, they're de and destroying their futures. It's not just me, it's a lot of people. And it's not just about profession, it's not just about careers, it's about, what it means to to what life is about, and um, you know, I I I can't. I just I won't soon forget, and I and I think a lot of people are in this boat that I won't soon forget um, the damage that's been done, what these people have done, and how people acquiesced to it the entire way. Um, you know, I, I I don't know what the future is um, from this point on, but you know, the 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 sliver of hope that I can provide to you and your listeners at the end of this is that I think a lot of people have sort of been snapped uh, snapped into consciousness about the kind of machinery at play, um, the manipulations of mass of mass media, um, and uh, you know these feckless, corrupt, um, dishonest, disingenuous politicians. Um, how "quote unquote" experts can be bought off. The the revered economist Tom, uh, Thomas Sowell once remarked that um, you know you you get the kind of expertise you pay for essentially, and um, so and you know that the failure of all these institutions um, from Silicon Valley and and uh, you know these big tech um, conglomerates I call them the reality cartel that are shifting our very perception of reality and what the truth is. The uh, you know th these press outlets that just are just corrupt and propaganda outlets for the state. These politicians who, as I said before, multiple times, um, clearly don't um, perceive the, uh, the threat to be as dangerous as, the, as, they're, telling, uh, as they're telling us it is. Um, our school system, the public education system um, is filled to the gills with people who don't seem to care about um, our, children's, uh, our children's education. There's so many things now, so many institutions now that we've seen are completely broken and uh, and in need and badly in need of repair. So perhaps that's the silver lining to take away from this is that um, you know we can see where the holes are, we can see what the problems are now, and we can begin to fix them. 
That's a fantastic answer. And I completely agree. And I, I hope you're right. And I think uh, hopefully we'll see some progress in those areas. Uh, so thank you so much, Clifton, again, for doing this. Uh, you can find Clifton on Twitter. It's uh, Clifton A. Duncan. Uh, you have a YouTube channel as well, Clifton Duncan. And there's the Clifton Duncan podcast. So please, everybody should go check this out. Uh, you have just brilliant insights and, and a really fantastic way of uh, explaining a lot of these policies. And that's very easy to easy to understand and digest. Uh, so thank you again, Clifton, for doing this. Of course, Ian. I appreciate it. From the-